this episode, we have Mr. O.C. Mr. O.C. is a solutions architect who has spent the last 13 years helping Fortune 500 companies save billions of dollars to achieve profitable goals. His latest venture is Hiroshi. Um, Hiroshi, is a, Hiroshi is linking Africans to global commerce, and the vision is to improve lives by opening access to, to the global e-commerce market. Hiroshi is both located in Houston, Texas, and Lagos, Nigeria. Mr. Osi, welcome, Mr. Osi. Well, happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me here, Silas. But I just Thanks wanted to tell you that when you said 13, it kind of sounded like 30 years. I don't want to, I want to make sure. <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing this for 30, no, it hasn't been 30 years. It's 1-3, not 3-0, just FYI. <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> With, with Solutions Architect, it's a very big space. And that was the first thing I, I was hoping we could get into. To, to hear you talk about your journey to becoming a Solutions Architect. Right. So my journey into Solution Architecture, uh, go back a little bit to getting into the world of uh, SAP, where I practice Solution Architecture. I obviously, like any other person, I started, I started as a developer, right? just being able to solve problems, helping companies to be able to uh, gather data, analyze data, help them to be able to make decisions based on data. Then over a period of time, as I walked across different uh, Fortune 500 um, multinational companies, then with each one that I walked out of, obviously I learned new things, new environments, complexities of problems, solving different problems. So just by the natural path of seeing bigger problems, solving bigger problems, and being able to have a much broader view of the problem set that organizations are trying to solve was able to, was, was what brought me to that level of being able to serve. So I would think of it this way. It's not like I sat down and thought to myself, okay, I'm going to take my career down this path. I will do this after so many years, I'll do this other thing. It was just kind of like a natural progression of continuing to solve problems, going into bigger companies, seeing different status, different types of problems, and then just solving and then moving up the ladder as I went along. So solution architecture, just to give you a frame of reference, solution architecture sounds like a big word. All it means really is that you are, you've seen stuff, you've done stuff, and you can be able to know how different systems play together. So that when you're solving problems, you can and be able to get a sense of what will break when you do this or that. And you can be able to sort of like say the end from the beginning and be able to put solutions together with that foresight in mind to be able to solve problems holistically. So that's essentially what solution architecture is. Nothing too complex. It's very amazing. You know, you touched on data and while you were giving us um, the initial opening there, I was going to ask, you know, how important is data to, to organizations and how organizations function and make the right decisions? In the world that we live in today, data pretty much is like blood to the body, really. Because when you think about it, if you are trying to run any company, whether it is a startup or an enterprise, if you are looking to grow that company and be able to compete in the world that we live in today, Data is pretty much like the blood of the organization because with data, or rather without data, you are running blind, right? You don't know how your organization is performing. 
you could be making progress and not even know why you're making progress. Or you could be failing and not know why you're failing. Either way, it is a dagger to, to, to your back because the problem is that you don't know what to tweak. It's like you don't have your hands on the levers of your company without data. So data, data becomes a very important lever to have so that you know how to run experiments, how to be able to analyze experiments and make decisions and iterate as you go along. Mm. That's great. I, I really, I do believe in, in the power of data, both um, quantitative and qualitative Absolutely. also. You know, Facebook was literally built on the back of big data. Right, right. And that that's one of the things that are very popular nowadays where everybody wants to have like um, a growth team with some strong data analysts and just knowing how Facebook was able to use that to determine, for example, users that sign up, what makes them stay on the platform, how many friends they have to have over a certain period of days to incentivize them to stay on the platform and being able to hack that process. So that brought it up into these, uh, essentially into these times for people to really realize that not only can you be able to make decisions off of data, you can drive product direction just working with data. Yes. Um, apologies if, if you can hear um, Slack messages dropping in. Um, forgot to turn that off. Uh, just switching gears a little bit, uh, you know, Hiroshi as a platform before product market fit, obviously, and you, you would tell us when exactly product market fit was. Um, but I guess if we take it back, back to 2012, when the idea came up, can you talk to us about the journey from that time until product market fit? Right. It's been a long winding road like any other startup that you would you know, that you would learn about. Now, of course, we know that with PR, everybody likes to, you know, burnish the story and make it sound all fantastic, but we all know, we all know where it hurts. And we all know that, that it's been a long slog uh, of a journey to get to where we are today. So the idea started back 2012 when my co-founder was, um, coming out from um, MBA program, rather from a master's program, and couldn't quite find a job, and she was looking for opportunities in the US here. And when that was not forthcoming, she literally um, put her hands to work, right? Um, helping family and friends in Nigeria source for products in the US and get it delivered to Nigeria. Then of course, the more you did that, or rather the more she did that, she figured out that it was quite very onerous, quite very challenging and expensive to be able to find products here for folks in Nigeria to be able to ship it. The cost was, was exorbitant. So it was at that point that it dawned on her that, wait, wait a minute, why does it have to cost this much? Why does it have to be so, so uh, painful to be able to achieve that? So the next step for her was trying to figure out how can I be able to create something that works for anyone. Interestingly, when they started, it started with her, her sister who was starting up a boutique store in Lagos, Nigeria. So she helped her to be able to, to shop in the US and to get stuff down to, uh, down to Nigeria for her to be able to, to get to market. Then eventually, uh, she just started telling other people, other people started telling other people. Then it got to the point where it became this long list of people who wanted to buy stuff and literally, we would have to walk through malls from store to store and buy stuff. Wow. The house, 
the house was a, a like a sorting ground, right? To to put things together and sort through everything. I remember back then that was still a, that was still the time where we had our blackberries, right? The BBM yeah. uh, phase, right? We take pictures, we use BBM to send that across, and you get feedback. Okay, I want this, I don't want that, I want this, I don't want that. Then over a period of time, we we started getting a sense of what customers uh, wanted and whatnot. Then what happened after that was that we actually pulled some of these customers trying to find out from them what it is that they want us to buy for them because we felt that, okay, wouldn't it be easier if we just buy a whole bunch of this stuff and just ship out to them so that we don't have to wait for them to place an order. Then we kind of uh, played around with that thought, gathered up enough uh, feedback from customers, filled up, I believe, a container load of, uh, a container load and shipped it down to, to Nigeria and then try to sell. That was where we really found out that is it's one thing, customers telling you this is what I want, and eventually when you ask them to pay, you get a different story than what they told you originally. <laughs> so we had a container full of stuff to liquidate within a short period of time. She ran through Lagos from, from mainland to, to Ireland trying to liquidate all this stuff, and it was quite very challenging. But But it was... It was a very great learning experience, right? We got to understand the market. We got to understand the customer. And of course, the process of validating what customers want. So that was a lot of lesson that we had to take back and figure out what our next step should be. So after running that experiment, it was very clear that that was a fail. But the experiment was not a failure. But the learning was that, okay, that would not be the right model. So we had to mm. iterate that model. So it was at that point that we set up um, a landing page and began to get people to come onto that landing page with the promise that we can help you shop in the US. And then we plug in other tools like Formstack, FreshBooks, to be able to collect orders and to fulfill orders. So all of that just came through to make it all work. There's a lot of these interesting stories that happen behind <laughs> it. I'm sure we, we haven't heard all of it actually. Because, you know, just having to ship that, that big container down to Nigeria and then, not, you know, people had already raised their thumbs that, hey, I want this. And then they don't want it anymore. I can imagine the, the process trying to offload all of that. Right. Right. That, yeah. that was the, one of the most challenging parts, right? Because mm. she was there for, of course, when, when you're traveling to Nigeria, you buy a ticket and you have, you have a return ticket that has a, yeah. a gate on it, right? So... You know yeah, that you yeah. have to finish getting rid of everything before you come back. And the day was winding down. And oh, I even forgot to talk about the part that the part that when it came into the the port, it was held up. Uh, it was uh, it wasn't seized, but because it was in a container with someone else's stuff in that container who had not mm -hmm. paid the shipping line, right? So the item was held up at the port. That itself was another journey to get it out. But that uh, that was sorted out. But the, the, to the question that you asked, the challenging part of getting rid of all of those things, um, when customers said they didn't want those things, uh, those items, meant that she had to run from store to store to store to store, looking for those that are uh, looking to buy in bulk to refill their inventories at a store. Then, of course, you get different kinds of excuses like, hey, uh, this stuff has a short expiration date, I can pay full price, or hey, this spec is not the kind of spec we sell down here or you know what um 
this brand is not the brand that is selling. So all kinds of reasons that the stores had to just beat down the price. But at the end of the day, the goal was to be able to gather data, gather information, and be able to use that to make the next decision. Suffice to say that eventually she had to extend the, the time period of her staying there just so she can be able to liquidate as much as possible before coming back. Yes, and you know, you, we spoke about data and also we're talking about learnings now. And this could, we'll chalk this under qualitative learnings, right? Because, you know, having to deal with customs, Hiroshi as a platform, I've used it. And Hiroshi as a platform now, you can see that customers don't have to deal with customs, right? You take those learnings and then eventually we got the landing page. And then, we, you know, we started, you know, um, looking for developers to, you know, help build out Hiroshi, I imagine. Right. What was it? You know, I, I think it, it was a journey getting here, but also there was still some work to be done before product market fit. So right. getting the right developers, you know, who mm. help build this thing up until that point. Um, before we, can you to finish to finish us off up until product market fit? Mm. Um, did you did you get any learnings between that period? Right. Coming from again, I, I guess coming from you know a solutions architect background, you obviously had a developer um, background, and I'm sure you could you understood code and you could play with it. But then setting up an entire system to handle all that work must have been you know some quite an experience. Yeah, I I knew enough to be dangerous, right? So I, I wasn't going to start messing around with writing code and building a platform. I I. Uh, with a computer engineering degree, I know that you can be able to solve problems with code. Uh, but the, the, my, as a solution architect, my job wasn't writing code. So I hadn't written code in a long time. So I wasn't going to start uh, trying to figure out how to write you know, code to solve that problem. But what we did do, though, was to figure out how to use no-code solutions and, and string them together. And that was a great learning, actually, that at the initial point, we didn't have to write code. We just had to figure out what are those different components that we needed to put together to validate the idea. So that was where we started with a uh, landing page on Squarespace, connected that to form stack so that when you click on the order button on the on the landing page, you can go, it takes you to form stack. You complete the form on form stack, and then we pipe that data to fresh books so we can create an invoice for you. At that point, uh, we can be able to generate invoice, send it across to you, you make payment, then we start the process. So all of that did not require us to write any line of code. It was just connecting uh, via API, connecting different tools together to make it all work. And with that, we were able to learn so much because we could see the customers coming through. Of course, we had Google Analytics. We could see how the customers are coming through. Uh, how they're dwelling on the page, what buttons they're clicking, and where they are landing, and how much time they're taking there. Look at the difference between how many people landed on the page, how many people actually clicked the order form, those that clicked the order form, how many of them completed the fulfilling of the order, and those that filled up the order, how many of them, um, and we send the invoice to them, how many of them actually did do payment. So those were the learnings. We started looking at the data, we started learning from that, and that helped us a great deal to be able to understand rather to validate the problem that we're trying to solve before we even started writing any lines of code. And that was a great learning that we didn't, we didn't have to go through the hard part of trying to write code at the, at the beginning. And now Hiroshi has thousands of, of users flocking in and 
trying to use the system. And again, it's a great, it's a great solution. Just to give my experience with Hiroshi, back when I, I, I first used it, you know, I'd been trying to, at the time, I'd been trying to buy from, it was an electronic device and I was trying to get it down to Nigeria and everything looked expensive. Actually, you know what, as a shout out to Hiroshi, the first TV I purchased with my money came through Hiroshi. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. You know, and I was so excited. If I remember, it was a TCL and it was so well packaged. It had this very solid wood around it and it came in and you know it was it was it was obviously it came with the chocolate you know the chocolate that comes oh, yeah, in every Hiroshima yeah. so, <laughs> so that was a nice that was a nice <laughs> topping on top of it yeah uh, um, you this, I, I was laughing because I, I i use um i remember using tcl tv in the past and i was looking at tcl is one of those brands that is quite very value a, a value product because it's one of the cheapest TVs you can get for for the quality that you get. So yes. these, back then it was everybody was doing Samsung and then Vizio came out and then TCL came out and it was it was a great product for a cheap price. I remember having one for a very long time. But anyway, that's an aside. Go ahead. Well, TCL has managed to nail um, <laughs> a plug on the podcast, so that's great for them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, looking to the future and, and the bright future that's ahead for Hiroshi. You know, I read in one of your interviews, you, you spoke to a couple of guys, and one of the things I picked from it was your, your talking about the future. And I, I guess in looking forward, you were looking at Hiroshi being building infrastructure to power social commerce. Right. Um, social commerce is a very new term. Um, you seem to be one of the um, early sort of proponents for that, you know, speaking very highly about it what is it about social commerce that is so attractive to you and why do you think that is the future for hiroshi or why do you believe that's the future for hiroshi i started looking at e-commerce i just looked at e-commerce from the historical point of view how has it functioned within the western world the us in particular right and what made it work you would notice that Amazon and the rest that really pioneered the growth of e-commerce in America worked because there were certain infrastructure that existed in the West, in the US that made it work. You had an addressing system, you had a logistics mechanism, FedEx, UPS, USPS, you had payment rails, um, American Express, Visa, MasterCard. Those things were in place to make it work. And it was just inevitable that it was going to work because those infrastructure pieces were there. Now, when we get to the rest of the world or Africa in particular, you notice that a good chunk of these items are missing. However, in Africa, we have been really, really adept in leapfrogging technologies to get to the next phase of technology and make it work. So when it comes to Africa, you would notice that there are those that have tried to do e-commerce, the Amazon style in Africa. They have gotten some modicum of success, but not you know, breakout success like Amazon. And I started to ask myself the question, why? Why hasn't that happened yet? And I began to look back through my history, living in Nigeria, growing up in Nigeria, and seeing how commerce was done in Nigeria. There was this phenomenon that used to happen. I would go to the market, 
with my aunt and we will get to the edge of the market. We will see some women selling tomatoes and other items. She wouldn't buy from that lady that's selling at the edge of the market. She will go all the way inside the market because according to her, she has, we used to call them my customer. In, she, she had her customers inside the main market and she will yeah. get there. We will be there for a good five, 10 minutes before she will buy anything, just gisting, right? And I'm like, the sun is blaring in my over my head and my face, but she's <laughs> enjoying the conversation before she would go ahead to buy that thing of tomato. And it never made yeah. sense to me, right? And it was later on I started processing this, and it dawned on me that commerce in Africa, whether it's in the open market or in the store or wherever, we tend to have a social component to shopping in Africa. Even growing up uh, back in the days, we used to have market days. I don't know if you remember back then where we used to have market days. There were certain days yes. that the market would open in our village where I grew up. And in those days, everybody waited for those days to go to market because market wasn't just a place to go buy and sell. It was where the community showed up to have a time of community, a time of community essentially mm -hmm. just to gist and catch mm -hmm. up with what's going on in other people's world. And even coming to this internet age, realizing that a good chunk of that still exists today tells me that it is embedded in our culture. It is embedded in our society. Social commerce just makes sense. And I began to see that when the proliferation of Facebook, WhatsApp, um, Instagram showed up and people and people began to latch onto these social tools, not just only for social connection, but for commerce. And you begin to see these platforms are beginning to, to drive their platform, especially in Africa, towards social commerce. That's when it clicked that something interesting is going on. Yeah. And this works mostly in, in Africa, more than the West, because yes. people are used to doing social commerce offline. And now they are being given these platforms like Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, and they have taken it from offline to online. And it just made sense that that is where Africa is going to thrive when it comes to e-commerce. And that's why I came up with this thesis that, that commerce in Africa is going to be social. It is going to be decentralized and it's going to be cross-border. So that's why we at Hiroshi are building tools that will be driving this growth of e-commerce in Africa because we believe it's going to be social, decentralized, and cross-border across Africa. So that's really why I'm excited about what we're doing at Hiroshi regarding this social commerce space. And there's this saying that it takes a village, right? And it's it's so, so important because you know how they say history repeats itself. I think if we're really going to, to get a crack at it, if we're going to get into it, it has to be based on existing structures that we're familiar right. with. Right. We can't we can't import something else and force it upon the people. It has to feel natural, right? Because it's it's very organic, and you can see yeah. that is gaining is getting a lot of ground organically, because yeah. that is what people are used to. If you really think about it, imagine you've been on Facebook for the last ten years, right? And you are selling say this cup on Facebook, and I come to buy it from you. I can look at your history. I see that you've been on Facebook for 10 years. I see your father on your distant timeline. I see your mother. I see your friends. And I know that there's a high propensity that I'm going to, because your, your, your real identity is there, that you're not going to scam me. 
that trust you've already built, right? Because there's great trust deficit when it comes to commerce in Africa. But because these social platforms have already built that trust layer using social, uh, social graph, that gives that breaks that barrier that allows me to be able to buy from you because I can look at your social profile and see that you're not a fly by night uh, guy that just wants to take my money and run away. So that helps me to, to do transaction with you. And that is essentially yeah. what, what is happening across Africa. It's organic and it just ties into the fabric of our society. And that's what I strongly believe is going to make it work. I believe it's going, it's going to make it work also. Um, you know, in that same article, I, I, I started talking about um, just switching gears a little bit now. Because uh, I wouldn't want us to, I wouldn't want you to give all the secrets of social commerce. I'm sure you have <laughs> something big planned for us, so we'll wait for it to come out. But, but in that article also, I I heard you mention how Hiroshi is a multi-geo startup. And, you know, you started, I, I don't know when this started for Hiroshi, but in 2022, it is, it is basically, a, a, it's here to stay. Being multi-geo, you have startups coming up who are supporting with payroll across um, borders and, and all of this stuff. Talk to me about some of the challenges. Again, I know you. I'm asking again because I, I also saw the article you wrote, right? So what are the challenges that you face early on? And maybe give us one or two pointers how you've managed to overcome that and become a solid startup building and solving an important problem. Right. So you're right. We were multi-geo, uh, even from our people perspective and from our operations perspective, for multi-geo, even before COVID, the days of COVID, right? So you would notice that by doing what we do just by nature, we from day one, we were a multi-geo company because you had to ship from somewhere to somewhere, and it wasn't yeah. all the U.S., that uh, that came naturally now the challenge with that is that it is a multi-geo startup you don't mm. have the luxury of saying let me start from a small place or within the vicinity where i reside to start solving that problem it just by its definition had to be multi-geo and we had to figure out how to make it work from day one now we are physically here in the us and the london part uh, london port is in nigeria so we had to figure out who is going to be that person that would help us from a Nigerian point of view. And of course, you get all these you know, people, all the naysayers that, that come in to say, hey, you're going to be in the US and run a company in Nigeria. Are you crazy, right? How do you find the right people? How are you sure they're going to steal your money, uh, uh, do all kinds of things? But I'm crazy. I'm crazy enough to believe that we have amazing people in Nigeria. And I think it might sound funny, and I, I, I was so boozy and tell those guys that you're crazy. How can you not have someone that you can trust in 140 million people back then or 200 million as we have now, at least one person. And we've been so fortunate to find the right people that had, because let me tell you how crazy it is. I haven't been to Nigeria since 2010. Wow. And yeah, I haven't been to Nigeria since 2010. And we've consistently found and hired people they have run the company in Nigeria without us being physically there. Now, that was a challenge that we had to learn how to overcome, right? We 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 couldn't just fly and go there and hire someone. And anytime we needed to change stuff, we'll fly there. No, we had to figure out how to be able to 
stay here in the U.S. and figure out how to be able to set up a structure in Nigeria and to operate a structure in Nigeria while not being there physically. That was very challenging to figure out, but we have been really blessed to have figured it out, and that has helped a great deal. Now, of course, with that also comes multiple challenges, building a culture, right? Being able to make sure that we're able to articulate that culture, imbibe the culture of Hiroshi and drive that in, that culture through end to end. That was really a lot of hard work because culture essentially is what fuses everyone together and keeps everyone together. Then on the operational part, then having to do with all of the moving parts because everything that we're doing is constantly moving from the product that's coming into the warehouse to moving it out of the warehouse, getting it into a plane, getting it into the country, dispersing it across the country. All of that, figuring all of those different pieces together took a lot of time and effort. Mm -hmm. So it was very complex pieces of discoveries along the way. Of course, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, but it, it took uh, quite some time, but we, we figured it out. Yes, uh, the I, I guess with being a multi-year startup, like, like you mentioned, from the product perspective, it was inevitable. You couldn't do without it, right? But also from the people perspective, you know, as much as you can have challenges with that, mm -hmm. I believe the benefits out outweigh the risks. Right. Um, the, what that allowed us to do was that we could hire from anywhere. And this this mm -hmm. is going back, like I said, 2019, um, 2018, before it was invoked to be able to hire anywhere. We had to figure out how to be able to hire mm -hmm. anywhere. Now, of course, mm. uh, that that has gotten better over a period of time. We we had people in Nigeria, people in Ghana, people in Canada, people even in UK at that point across the globe, and we had to figure it out. And being able to have access to that that wealth of talent across the board gave us an added advantage because we were not just restricted to the locality where we existed physically. Mm. And you touched on culture. You know, having to do something so massive, mm -hmm. it's important that you have the culture to glue everything together. Right. And culture is something a lot of people talk about. You know, a lot of, it, it's in vogue now for companies to say you have to have the right culture, you have to do these things. But in a multi-geo startup, what does that look like? How do you start bringing these people who are across the entire globe together mm -hmm. to pursue this mission and to do it together? The culture emanates from the individual right so it's it's all about who you are and what you believe as an individual then the culture uh, of the organization absorbs the the culture of the, the individual founders that come together collectively so that for us we knew we had to be very intentional about what we were building and one of our culture tenets is empathy now empathy was was a thing that we knew was critical, a critical glue to being able to build an environment that is conducive, that makes everyone feel a part of the same. So how were we able to drive, drive this through? We knew that choosing that core culture of empathy was going to be costly. There were going to be some, some tensions uh, when it comes to empathy in making decisions. Because culture is not just what we say, it's about what we do. And there are some decisions yes. that we have to weigh through, uh, or rather uh, funnel through the prism of empathy to be able to make those decisions. And being 
making making that cultural tenets of empathy as one of the core values that we believe in meant that we had to teach people how to be empathetic. Now, of course, you can't teach someone how to be empathetic. It comes from the inside, but it helped us mm -hmm. to make sure that we are hiring the right people that have a sense of empathy and driving through the message of empathy and why it matters to us. And we define empathy as not just uh, feeling what someone else is feeling, but treating people the way that you want to be treated, meaning that you want to be treated the way that with understanding. You want someone to understand you, to treat you the way that you want to be treated. That means you go out of your way to learn about someone else, to be able to treat them the way that they want to be treated. And that was empathy. How did we effectively, how do we effectively uh, affect that? We had to take the time to get to know everyone that's coming to the organization beyond just getting work done. We open ourselves up to talk about our personal lives, to, to be open and vulnerable with the people. And being open and vulnerable attracted a lot of connection with the people because when they know that you're not just putting up a front, right? We had scenarios where we, we have shared some deep moments within the organization to let people know that, hey, we are truly human beings at the core. We all bleed the same. And creating that sense of we're all in this together and we see each other just as we are give people a sense of, okay, this is not just a company that's here to take up all my energy and just pay me pennies and damn, but that these guys are ready to go to war and they're ready to go to work together. So that created that sense of, of togetherness. It took a lot of time, took a lot of efforts. And of course, it's quite very costly. At the end of the day, it is worth its weight in gold. And that's one of the things that's really, really helped us to, to really uh, be together and work together as a company, even though we are across different geographical locations and it's the one right it's the one thing that companies i believe should prioritize in my opinion it's a, a two-part thing when when you you're an individual who does work there is a people you work with and mm -hmm. then there's work you do so yeah. you have to enjoy the people because right. most of we spend most of our time at work right you have to enjoy the people before you're you're motivated to do the work right because we spend eight to 10 hours with each other every day. And if you showed up at work and everybody else there, you don't get along with them and you just feel crappy, you wouldn't stay there for too long, right? So if you want a place that feels like home, you want a place where there's that sense of camaraderie, that sense of, of friendliness, that sense of care, and that we make sure that that was very, very much felt uh, within the organization from the top leadership to everyone within the organization. So yeah, that, that, was, that was the glue. We, we knew we needed to be able to bring everyone together across different parts of the world where our people are. Very important. Um, you know, you mentioned about having deep moments and sharing deep moments with your people. Mm -hmm. when, when I look at what happened at the start of this year for Hiroshi, Hiroshi had a deep, deep moment. Right. And, you know, it was, it was obviously when you have this moment, it's both an opportunity to, to reset, take stock, and then start trending upwards again. But we can't, we can't gloss over the fact that it was quite the journey. What, ab what about that point? What about that point has set Hiroshi up for, in your opinion, 
the next phase of growth. Yeah. I always, uh, I always joke that everyone will have their own Golgotha moments, whether you want it or mm. not. So everyone, that? everyone will have that Gethsemane moment. Everyone will have their Golgotha moments. So right. the, the, <laughs> we had ours at the, at the end of last year when, when we experienced some challenges with, with uh, the different US agencies from CBP to DHS to um, who else? I mean, it was it was a mess. We and the reason why the thing hit at the core was because we go hard, right, to please our mm -hmm. customers. And when our customers are not pleased, it it is per we take it really personally, deeply personally. So when these uh, when it happened that our cargo was held up in the US here and we're trying to get it through and our customers were feeling the pain of it and we're communicating to them. And of course they had all the kind, all different kinds of comments and people you know, just throwing venom from every side. And it was just only natural being human that at some point it gets at you, but you have to realize that it's not about you. It's about these people initially, I start, I I was feeling it the 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 pressure the pain and everything but at some point I asked myself if I'm feeling it this much how much more about these individuals who literally have sunk in their life savings into this thing right mm -hmm. they bought these products they are probably hoping to sell it to make their money for the holidays to buy things for their friends loved ones and everything and here they are held up and we're struggling to to get it out for them so that gave me a level of a sense, a sense of responsibility and a sense of, of empathy and, and urgency to be able to drive this. And so what would happen then is that every day from the moment when I wake up, I'm driving down to the US agents, whether it's customs or DHS or whichever agency, and I'm sitting with them all through half of the day, having conversations, working out what needs to be done, coming back to the team, figuring out what needs to be done from a product point of view, from a process point of view, from operations point of view. And this went on for days. And then I'm on social, I'm, I'm talking with customers, I'm doing videos, I'm sending things through. And it was exhausting. And in the midst of all of these things, uh, we were trying to fundraise at that time. So it was crazy. Wow. <laughs> it was insane. And all those times wow. I would be in a call with a potential investor and the first question I would ask, is oh well, we read about you guys and I'm like we haven't even had a conversation we're standing on a bad foot but that wow. was on our side but the thing what 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 I did not know is how much energy it was sapping from me right how much it had been weighing on me from December January February it, we were going through this and even to some portion of March and when it was all done I mean. I took a break and literally broke down because it was overwhelming. It was crazy overwhelming. But I knew that we had gone through a life-altering experience. It was a necessary experience for us to go to the next phase, right? It's like, it's like that teething experience for a child to get to the next phase of growth. It was a critical moment. We learned so much, one, about each other, we learned so much about our customers and we learned a whole lot about the export process that we took for granted. And we really had to sit down with these agencies. I know the time last time that we went to sit down with them, we, we had 
we had a plethora of, of different US agencies, DHS, CBP, uh, BIN, and TSA. We sat down with them to have conversation about the process. They gave us a list of all the things that we need to do differently. And it was, it was a whole lot. And the good thing is that because we work collaboratively with them, they opened up to us and shared with us details that they would not have shared with other people uh, that, that were going through the process who didn't collaborate with them. So that gave us a lot of leg up. And we took all of that into, into account to we completely rebuild our process and our systems. And we have seen great, great improvement from that experience. But it was overwhelmingly challenging. But we got through it and we definitely had to grow. And we did grow from it. And you know, we can we can speak to all the challenges that that presented. But what I choose to what I choose to learn or to hear in this situation is it was an opportunity for the company to practice empathy. You know, you spoke about being involved in it and doing it yourself as right. a CEO. That would have solidified the fact that empathy is truly something in the bloodstream of Hiroshi. Absolutely, because initially, when when the this stuff happened, right, it was so easy to get into that position of "woe is me" kind of situation. But I had to take mm. myself out of the equation, right? I had to take my team into account. I had to take the customers into account. I had to realize that was a customer that had products that were that was worth over twenty thousand dollars. That, wow. and I'm thinking to myself, this is Nigeria. This guy has scraped up many months, if not years, of savings to, to buy this product. And here they are being held up. Not only is he losing sale, he has the potential of losing so much money. So I had to kick, I had to kick into the next girl, like, no, this cannot happen. I can't let this happen. I have to solve this for this customer. And that's where that empathy kicked in, where it wasn't about me, it was about how will this customer feel if you had to lose all of these things, right? So that's where, when it dawned on me that truly, truly, the culture of, of, of empathy has really taken deep in the company. And also looking at our people operations, from our people operations to our customer support, everybody banded together. There, wasn't every, there, there were no titles at that point. Nobody had any titles <laughs> at that point. It was whatever your hand could find doing, just do. Yeah. So we had people at different levels doing different things, and it was all about how can we write the customer for their stress and their pain that they've, they've had to go through all through that course of time. That that's such a great story to hear, and I'm I'm happy to hear and to I can feel it that it is only going to get better from here. Um, but for this podcast, we're starting to get to we're starting to wind down and to finish. And for to close this out, I had three questions, three rapid fire. It could be as rapid fire as you want it to be to um, ask you. The first was, I guess, get a sense of who Mr. O.C. is when he's not, you know, uh, putting out fires and like trying to, you know, coordinate everything. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite music group or who's your favorite um, artist that you love listening to at the moment? I, I stumbled onto these guys, the cavemen recently. It's, it's, <laughs> I know I know you will laugh because I remember I remember you pulled me yeah. onto these guys a while back and I just couldn't yeah. get the music. But then they they popped up recently on my YouTube and I started listening to them like wait a minute, wait a minute. I started listening to the the craft to me was just unbelievable. 
right? It's not it's not just singing for the sake of singing or to make a hit. It's about the 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 craft, the attention to the detail, the work ethic. You can see it from the from the music, and I just I just fell in love. I've been listening to that stuff for the past few months, and it just mind blown. The caveman just give me goosebumps just hearing. You know, I immediately say, caveman, this song kept. I might, I might butcher this, but I still want to try it because I love them so much. My favorite song is, is it Oye Oye Maruche? I don't even know what it means. But so, what does it mean, sir? So Oye Oye Maruche, Oye Maruche. So who knows the mind, right? So if you you can ask it as a question, Oye Maruche, who knows the mind? And and mm -hmm. here's here's the thing I find fascinating about uh, some of these uh, song artists. Uh, and it's not just about the music. The music is beautiful, but the lyrics, some of them are, are to, to me, they're not just musicians. I consider them philosophers. They're telling stories mm -hmm. of life. It's like they're, they're making meaning of life with their words and their music. And beyond just, beyond just the sound, it gives you something mm -hmm. to think deeply about. And that's, that to me is music that really is evergreen in my mind. And, you know, I, I didn't even know before, before I think, before I even knew what it meant, the, the, the sound connected with me, right? Like I could hear it was so deep. It was like a question. I don't know what the question was, but I felt like <laughs> I was being asked a question or this was a, this was a question I should be asking. You know, it, it's powerful. It's powerful. So the second was, what do you do to stay motivated? You spoke about how at the start of the year, you know, it was it was quite it. But how how do you get through all that what how do you get up every morning and do it again yeah, for for me it's about the why the, that that's what keeps me motivated why why am i doing this i i as i mentioned uh, when i was talking about market days growing up i grew up in a little village uh off of Aba township in in Obimba, local governments in Abia state and i know what was what it was like growing up there right for for me, it felt like we won a lottery, right? Like, you know, when you come from a family that it just seemed like for whatever reason, we made it out, right? And everybody else that seemed to not have made it out, right? And to be given that privilege to have made it out, because uh, my, my father left the village when everybody was still there, came out of town, left, went to the US, and school here brought every one of us here eventually and we had this privilege that was conferred upon us not for anything just by winning the biological lottery as i call it mm -hmm. so i feel that sense of responsibility i owe to not just my community but my generation and my country at large like asking myself the question what can i do to impact this generation for years to come so for me, it's not about the, uh, the accolades, title, money, and any of these things. It's about what is it that I can build as an infrastructure, as a platform that can give leverage to others that are coming up to be able to establish themselves. So that gives me motivation to keep going at this every day. And, and just as a word of advice for anyone that's looking to build anything, any startup or anything of that nature, it's... After a while, the money drive fades because the stress, I'm telling you, look at my gray hair, it's already coming out. The stress <laughs> is crazy. Right? But yeah. the thing is, if you are really passionate, if the why is really strong in your mind, that's what wakes you up. 
that's what gets you to do the late night that's what gets you up the next day to keep on doing it because you are looking for something to happen and it's a long-term thing it's not a quick yes. and wrong kind of thing it's a long-term yes. game we're playing here so that's what keeps me going every day even at the lowest moments i remind myself hey you're not doing this for yourself there are people that are dependent on this thing even if it's not just for the people that, that will be impacted tomorrow but the the customers that wouldn't be able to start their businesses if not for our platform the customers that wouldn't be able to grow their businesses if not for our platform the customers that won't be able to send their children to school if not for our platform the fact that we are building something that is helping the society and it's going to have significant impact across the continent that energizes me every day that's such a great point find your why and you just might be lucky like mr Ossi, to be motivated every day um sure so the second the, the second to the last question is if you could sit down with any of your icons dead or alive mm. who would it be and why and what would you talk about mm. or what would you want to ask them so to speak this uh funny for me i don't have i don't have that icon that really stands at the top of my mind right but what what i do think a lot about is my grandparents because i grew up with my grandparents uh, while my parents were out in the u.s studying and i watched these folks uh, especially my grandfather my father's side and i watched him growing up his level of work ethic this man he was a palm wine tapper seller uh, and seller uh, and he was he used to process palm oil and sell in the market he was a farmer a yam farmer and from season to season he always had something working it was very enterprising he would mm -hmm. figure out how to go buy low uh, the uh, the oil across different parts of the village and then refine that oil and take it to market and this was way back then he figured all these things out on his own he wasn't trained in school he didn't go through any course that wasn't any coursera udemy or any of these things but he figured out how to enterprise and uh, self-thoughts really so i look back at that experience and i'm like wow that even within our culture right as africans we have figured out how to solve our own problems how to create value way back when and seeing how he did it and looking back just watching him do what he did is one of the things that really energized me that has given me a lot of confidence and passion that i have generations of people who have done this thing before and essentially i'm i'm i'm, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants that have done this thing before and that gives me the courage to keep going every day. So if I had a time to sit with him and talk with him now, I'll be like, man, you made it happen. Uh, that Back then, I, I wasn't appreciative of all the work that he yeah. put us through to support his, his uh, hustle. But now I look back, I'm like, man, I can't believe you made it happen because he did make it happen. And he raised over 11 children and just at uh, the back of his, his business and my grandmom's uh, industriousness. And that was just super amazing. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. 
Um, so for the final act, I was going to give you the opportunity to, I guess we've spoken for, for a while now. I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak about anything we might not have touched on, but you think, you know what, this is a good thing to add on, on top of everything else. Right. So the, the work that we are doing, right, it's, for me, it is not just, um, I don't see it as just we are solving the problem of, of logistics for Africa or the problem of payments or access for Africa. I'm, I'm looking at it from a perspective that we're building a platform for Africa to leapfrog again, right? Like I always say that Africa, we have been in this game of leapfrogging from landlines to mobile phones, right? From desktop to smartphones and tablets and from credit cards, we leapfrogged all the way to mobile money and crypto, right? And, mm -hmm. and now we're in e-commerce, right? And we're leapfrogging e-commerce and we're going global, we're going social. Being able to have the privilege to build a platform that is going to drive that leapfrogging of commerce across Africa is something that I'm hugely excited about. And I strongly believe that it's going to drive the way that Africa does commerce in the next decade. So for me, my my thing is every day, my thing every day is to figure out how can I keep bringing in the right resources, human resources, financial resources, energy to this work to make sure that I resource this enough that it's able to see the light of day and continue to grow and build that platform. I see it like an oak tree. If you've ever seen an oak tree, the oak tree has so much value from the shade that is given to the people underneath it, to the birds that climb on top of it, even to the point when it's cut down, it produces so much uh, so much wood and value to the people that use it. This is the way I see this. We're building something that is going to live across time and impact the lives of so many people. So I'm deeply excited about it. As you can tell, I can talk about it all day. <laughs> and I'd love to hear you talk about it all day. You know what? Thank you so much, Mr. Elsie, for coming. This was this was so enjoyable. And um, yeah, I, I I believe people would find this really, really, really impactful. Um, again, thank you. Glad I could be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, this I know we've been trying to get this done for the longest of time. And <laughs> it was worth the wait. I have to say, it was worth the wait. When it's time, it's time. When is the right time, you can tell and you know it. So um, I'll stop recording now. Just... Okay.